Greetings, benevolent souls of the multiverse, and welcome to the Sacred Portal Podcast. I am your host, Abby Rose Wolf. Together, we will explore and journey through self-care practices and personal stories to ignite inspiration and passion within. Thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and review and hit the subscribe button. Share with your friends and family on social media. Thank you so much. In this episode, I interview Sophie Perillo. Sophie is a dear, dear soul sister. I've known her for years and we've stayed in touch while abroad. And this is the first time I've heard her story from living in Hawaii to her journey through India and learning about Tibetan Buddhism. She is so wise and such a good teacher. I just love listening to her story and I really hope you do too. My biggest takeaway from this is to keep working on purifying the mind through meditation and how much that ripples out and makes a difference in the world around us. Here we grow. Hello, Sophie, and welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy for you to be here right now. I love hearing your stories and your wisdom that you share. And so I want to talk about hardships. So many of us, we go through difficult times and don't in the moment know how they're going to lead us in a direction that we could not foresee at all. At the time, it might be really challenging, but to come out of that and then realize that was it was part of the plan all along is really an amazing experience. And so I want you to please tell us about what happened with you, what led you to India, and what led you to where you are now? Because I think your story is very unique and very inspiring, and I would love for listeners to hear it. Thank you, Abby. I'm also really excited to be um, talking with you in my first ever podcast. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you for asking to share my story with the world makes it feel like a lot of work that I did is was worth something if I can offer back even just as a story. So thank you for letting me story this. <laughs> I guess I'll start by saying I was, I guess I was about 26 or 27 when I moved to Hawaii I grew up in Oregon. I've never been outside of Oregon. Uh, maybe one one vacation to Europe, but that was that was it. That's not true. You can edit that out. That's totally not true. I, <laughs> I was at I I, I I spent six months in, in South America before that. <laughs> oh, uh, the story unfolding even more. Okay, so anyway, I'd done some travel, but I was really really looking for a career, and I felt this intense anxiety to like settle into a career. And I really wanted to like have a forever job that would make me lots of money and, you know, that I could feel more secure in. I was really being pushed by this idea of job and security. And so for me, that meant this wilderness therapy, horticultural therapy program job that I took in Hawaii, which I didn't realize was a very kind of transient job and not something I would want to do for very long. But I started in on it with that idea and this idea that maybe I would stay in Hawaii for some time. Yeah, it just so happened I was there for four months-ish, I think, three or four months. Not long, really not long. I had a bike. I would ride my bike to the beach. I would call up my friends and say, let's go to the beach and then go to work. So we would work like these full week long shifts was it seven days, eight days? It was eight days. Eight days on, six days off. Yeah. Yeah, So yeah, you get like a a little Hawaii vacation every eight days, basically, which was really cool. Um, I was like, this is great. And I, and, you know, really enjoying that. But in a lot of ways, I really didn't have a lot of focus. I didn't have a lot of clarity or direction. 
in my life and it was quite unstable in a lot of ways but I was really excited about the work and I did I, I kind of jumped into it head first and interestingly enough I was also quite um, into the idea of rites of passage at the time and I had recently gone through my own vision quest with one of the programs down in Colorado. I forget which, which program it was. There are a few. They take people out on a vision quest as kind of a group. You go out to a natural area, you stay there for 12 days, I guess, all together. And you do three days of fasting and vision and prayer and kind of calling in, you know, from the elements, from the universe, from the ancestors. What is the purpose of this one? And you do that as a group. And so I was really interested in that. I had done a vision quest on the land in New Mexico. And it was a really profound experience. Um, But even then, I kind of felt like there wasn't, I was kind of like, yeah, I'm just, I just need to do a vision quest. I just need an initiation, you know, and I I went out there and had like the splendid three days of fasting and vision and beauty and nature you know, animal spirits coming and some very beautiful realizations and still not a lot of direction. I guess I had hoped, you know, like, ah, yes, my life's purpose will come out of this is that it will be very clear. (laughs) But yeah, that's kind of the vibe I went on into Hawaii with. And it was interesting because after about three or four months of working there, I I was training to do the youth initiation. I I was taking the training course for leading the youth on these kind of like a vision quest week, you know, that they would have the children, the young people do as a part of their therapeutic treatment. They had like kind of an initiation practice. And I was like, yeah, I want to do that. So we went through this week of kind of doing a little bit of like what the kids were going to do. I'll share like one thing I've never shared really before. I had a two quite profound experiences that week. And, I, and I'm and i sharing this now because actually the memory of it just popped into my head a few days ago. We had to sleep in the bunks as staff who were training in the bunks that the young people were staying in. Of course, you know, they gave us a room that was empty of children, young people, and just for staff. But these were bunk beds that kids had slept in, many, many angry kids. And I remember lying there I was looking up at the bunk bed and my other staff mates and we were all kind of just going to sleep and snoozing off. And I was looking at all this graffiti that had been like carved into the bottom of the bunk bed. As you can imagine, the kind of graffiti that angry teenagers would write. And the, the words became illuminated, almost like these magic words, illuminated in a sense. And I was like, whoa, that's weird. <laughs> it became like glowing and moving and shifting, almost like this kind of like spell or incantation you might see in a movie or something. I was like, okay, that's interesting. And I had this sensation of being all of a sudden not in this world, somewhere between dream and wakefulness. But as I remember, it was a lucid state, a totally lucid state. That I was like, I'm in my body. There's that guy who I work with. There's that lady who I work with and in this room, very conscious, very aware. And being pulled, I had the sensation of being pulled up, yanked out of the bed by my shoulders, drug across the room and pinned up against the wall by this force. Very dark, very heavy, angry force pulled up. And I, and I remember like being up pinned up against the wall and kind of like looking at my co-workers <laughs> sleeping in their bunk beds and thinking like, huh, this is uncomfortable. <laughs> what is going on? And I was like, well, clearly there's some kind of dark force, some kind of like entity. I don't know what this is, but if what I know is true about the mind, I'm in control here. And In that moment, I used my mind, I used my imagination to imagine that instead of this like oppressive, dark entity who was pinning me against the wall, there was this like big, hairy, slobbery dog. (laughs) And I just kind of was like, oh, this is this big, slobbery dog. Ah," You know, it's like 
slobbery dog. And from there, the dream dissolved. I managed to be back in my bed. But this was one of several experiences I've had with this sort of entity, this very powerful, seemingly from outside myself, dark force. So that was the week of our training. And we even did this wonderful little like death ceremony where each of us like crawled into this dug pit that was going to be our, our grave, you know, and we said our final words to the world, how would we would want to be remembered. This was all part of this training for this initiation we do with the, the students. So I was like, whoa, that was so cool. Like that was an amazing initiatory experience. There was all this kind of synchronicity and interesting. And I was like, yes, this is the work I want to do with young people. I want to bring them to this, these experiences. And so the work week ended, we all went home I was totally exhausted from that week, like drained, utterly drained. Uh, you know, I didn't sleep well in those crappy bunk beds. It's, it was just intense for me. I'm quite a sensitive person, especially also with such a like, you know, intense dream experience. I think that was pretty profound. So I went home and I remember like the first day off we had, all I wanted to do was just sit in my basement apartment and just sleep and not go into the sunshine, not enjoy Hawaii, not do anything exciting, nothing. But I kind of forced myself to do that. I, I called up all my girlfriends and I was like, hey, let's go to the beach. And um, I got on my bicycle. I started riding to the beach. And I remember I had my headphones on. I had some like pumped up music to like get me pumped up to really just force myself out of my inwardness. I externally used these tools to oh, let's go. I had a beer in my backpack and like, you know, it's like ready to go to the beach. I came up to this huge intersection. I was entering into the intersection and the light turned yellow. And I thought, ah, shit, this is a huge intersection. I really got to pedal through to get out of here before cars start moving. I remember entering into the intersection and kind of like noticing that the car that was turning left in front of me was also in the middle of the intersection. I said, oh, that car is going to be turning. And then the car kept moving towards me. I said, oh, that car's moving towards me. I was like, oh, that car's, oh, that car doesn't see me. Like that car is going to crash into me. And when I had that realization, this is all like all completely lucid again through the entire experience, high level of lucidity. I had been practicing a lot of meditation, one hour in the morning, one hour in the evening with a, a house full of people who did Vipassana meditation, Goenka tradition, Goenka. So my capacity for being very clear and very lucid was right on, spot on. So I, I observed as this car slammed into me and as I like flew over the hood of the car and like saw the look on the people's faces, there's this lady in the front seat and the guy driving who like didn't even notice. And the lady was like, ah, <laughs> this girl goes flying over their car. And I tumbled, falling on my left side, scraping up my whole left side of my body and the, the main injury on my left patella, my kneecap was where the car hit and shattered my kneecap. And I remember this. I didn't know that at the time that my knee was shattered. I kind of was like, oh, I just got a little scratch. and I'm just going to get, I'll be out of here in the afternoon. And I remember after rolling and, you know, I was on my back and I sat up and I remember very, very vividly the strongest sense of deja vu I've ever had in my life. Mm. It was the sense that I know this. Like this experience, I know. Oh, uh, oh. it was actually like I, the, the best way I can describe it is like, you know, when you see the preview to a movie and then later you watch the movie and you're like, oh, I remember that part from the preview. Yes. That. That's, that is the most precise way that I can describe this sensation, this, this feeling. Oh, I remember this part. I forgot about this. <laughs> that, there was a sense that I knew not only that I had chosen this experience, but that it was a very important experience and that I had forgotten that I had chosen it. <laughs> that that was a part of it. 
I had this sense of like, oh, and I kind of habitually like cursed off shit, you know, like something like that, you know, <laughs> when I like looked down at my knee and I, I actually don't ever remember seeing my knee messed up or bloody or anything. Although I did hear later from somebody who said that their child had passed by in a bus. A school bus was passing by at the time. She's like, oh, yeah, my kid was in that bus. And she said there was this girl all bloody in the intersection of the I was like, oh, so I traumatized an entire busload of children as well. <laughs> this I only found out much, much later. Anyway, and they hauled me off to the uh, emergency room where I was kind of blissed out. I was just like, oh, well, this is a great opportunity to practice mindfulness, you know? <laughs> I was just like, wow, okay, like just be present. I didn't feel any pain. None. I must have been just juiced on adrenaline. And I remember laying in the triage and this doctor, beautiful doctor woman came up. She's like, honey, do you want some medication? We can give you some pain medication. And then I was like, nah, I'm good. I mean, I'm literally thinking like, I'll be out of here by the, you know, in no, they just got to check and make sure it's, you know, whatever. I'll be out of here in 30 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, that was there like three days (laughs) in the hospital. You know, she was like, this isn't a boo-boo. The magnitude of the injury wasn't really, it really wasn't a big deal. Like, I mean, now I look back, I'm like, it was one broken bone. And um, my osteopath who was there at the time too, he was like, you know, I'm, I'm working on a guy who fell out of an airplane. He has every bone in his body broken. You're fine. <laughs> and I was like, am I going to be okay, doc? He's like, you're fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was, it was a big traumatic event. I was hit by a car. I was hit by a black Ford Focus. I was hit by a black Ford Focus. And it was just like, whoa, interesting, interesting. So many interesting things. And there was a lot of really painful, shitty recovery time and it was really miserable. And I, it was painful and difficult. But in the end, I got a pretty big insurance settlement. I, I hired an attorney, my parents' attorney, to make sure that I got the settlement from the insurance company, which I don't think they would have given me anything if, if I hadn't had an attorney, by the way, get one if you are ever in an incident like that, because she was able to get me the maximum insurance payout for the incident. And so then I just, I had this money and I was like, well, what do I do with all this money? And I spent a lot of time in that recovery thinking like, well, what, I have an opportunity now that like very few people get, like if you could do whatever you want to do in the world and money wasn't an issue, what would you do? And I had that moment. I had that opportunity because I'm not like, I don't want a lot, you know, I I couldn't have got out and bought a Ferrari. Like it wasn't that much money, you know, (laughs) like it wasn't that much, but for me and the way I live, I've never made more than $10,000 in a year. Maybe the maximum I've ever made was $12,000 in a year. I was like, I can live with this for a while and I can travel, you know, where would I travel? And uh, yes, I started dreaming and visioning and somehow I came across, um, I think it was through the work I was doing. I came across an opportunity for a fellowship in something called spiritual ecology. And I didn't even know what that was. I didn't even know what the fellowship was really, to be honest. I heard spiritual ecology. I was like, yeah, (laughs) I want that. And part of it was proposing an idea that you want to share with the world and they would help you refine that idea, get some grant funding for that idea and start a project. And I was like, yes, that's what I want to do. We met once in Whidbey Island beautifully just this amazing meeting of minds and people who are literally reshaping the world into something much more beautiful. Um, They are all amazing people that I got the chance to meet. And then they decided to take us to India as part of our experience. And we were to go and meet with the environmental efforts of Tibetan Buddhism and we were kind of exploring that vein. Like, where's Tibet? What is Tibetan Buddhism? What are, what are they doing? And what is that worldview? And how does environmentalism incorporate it into that? And also, we were going to go visit the farm of Dr. Vandana Shiva. She is, of course, 
biodiversity and organic foods activist, the beautiful Indian lady with the very big dot on her forehead. Um, it's kind of her signature and always wearing these beautiful handmade Benares saris. So it's just iconic figure in an organic movement. So I was delighted. I knew of her and, um, India was the last place I would have chosen to go. I mean, really, I never would have. Maybe when I was a child, maybe when I was a teen, I was like, oh, India. But there was so much fear piled on top of me by the world that said, like, India is a scary place. You would never want to go there. And I always thought, like, that's not a place I can go. I'm too sensitive. I can't do that. So it literally took a group of people paying for the entire trip and holding my hand to put me on the plane, literally, to get there. And then I kind of thought, well, maybe, maybe I'll stay. You know, maybe I'll stay a little longer, too. I did leave out one thing. In that time when I was recovering, in the year that I lived in Hawaii, that was kind of like recovery, not really doing a whole lot. I got a, I got a job working at a juice bar. And in the juice bar, this really interesting lady would come in. She was like kind of a little bit nervous, but like kind of, you know, one of those people you look in their eyes and you're like, where are you from? Like, what is happening with you? (laughs) You're like, what planet are you on? (laughs) You know, that was Iris Swallow. And Iris Swallow became my friend. She was in her 70s. I think she was 75. And she became my new best friend. And, <laughs> I, you know, she was old and she didn't have a car. So I would drive her places and she'd buy me lunch. And, you know, we'd talk and go for walks in the park and go get ice cream together from her favorite ice cream place. And basically she would just, she was a Dzogchen Tibetan Buddhist practitioner she had studied Taoism. She had studied all kinds of Buddhism. And she was, I would say, clairvoyant or intuitive to a certain extent because of what she said. She has 30 years of meditation practice, and that's what happens. That is a natural effect of that kind of practice. And she had been practicing for many, many years, studying Dharma and, and these profound teachings for a long time. Anyway, she kind of took me under her wing in a, in a few ways. And she had heard that I was going to Navdanya and, and she wanted to get involved and send some donations directly to Vandana Shiva. And she kind of just, she kind of utilized me as her hands in some ways, going around the world, making some connections. I did whatever she said. I had such faith and trust in her. Whatever she said, I would do. And so one day she said, you have to go to Honolulu to the environmental conference that's happening there. This was 2016, I guess. Anyway, she's like, you have to go to Honolulu, go to this, this environmental conference and give this letter to Jane Goodall. And I was like, what? How am I going <laughs> to? First of all, plain expensive. Staying in Honolulu, expensive. Going to this conference, expensive. Come on, like, be nice. Like, don't, I don't have any money. And this is while I was still waiting for this settlement to kind of come through. I was really pretty broke. And um, she's like, don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. And so I like, oh, fine. So I like bought the ticket, stayed in a hostel, did all this stuff and went. And after her lecture, I, I got to give this letter that Iris had written to Jane Goodall and and just be there and like meet Jane Goodall for a moment. And it was that in itself. She's a profound spiritual teacher in her, in her own right. She's not like just the lady with the chimpanzees. Are you kidding me? Like she's profound. (laughs) She's a bodhisattva. So I really had a lot of trust in Iris and Iris was the one actually who said, you're going to stay in India longer, you know, after the, the fellowship, after you go to the fellowship, try two months. So I did. I stayed two months after the fellowship took us to India. And then I came back to Hawaii. She says, now you're going to go back and stay at Navdanya for a year. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. I'm going to go there and stay for a year. And we kind of kept in touch via emails and all these other things. The really big key thing was that I met His Holiness, the Karmapa, who is the 17th incarnation of the 
leader of this particular sect of Tibetan Buddhism, Kagyu, Karma Kagyu, Drukpa Kagyu, can't, can't remember which one, lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. It's a very, very powerful being. We had a moment with the fellowship to meet this, this man, this being, this Buddha, and it just, it changed everything. I, I met this teacher and there was this profound sense of allyship in a way, almost like meeting a brother or an uncle or like um, just somebody who you've always known and loved and has always cared for you and you didn't really realize was there. And making that connection with him was really like this kind of anchor into Tibetan Buddhism. He just held me and anchored me to it. And reading his work and diving deeper into Tibetan Buddhism and that particular lineage, I felt all these familiarity. I've always believed in past lives, but I really understood at this moment, ah, I have a lot of history with Buddhism. I have a lot of history with Tibetan Buddhism. I have history with this particular lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. There is some contract here <laughs> that is coming to fruition. That experience really was the, a catalyst for a lot of my time in India. And so I remember Iris saying, I don't remember if it was a call or an email or what. I think it was probably, in, maybe it was in person even. She had said, you know, I was like, oh my God, a year in India? Like, that's so much. Oh, that's a long time. I'm going to be lonely. And she's like, you're not going to deal with that anymore. Like, you're not going to deal too much with the intense loneliness that you've known in the past. You're kind of over the depression thing, which is true. That was true. Um, not that it wasn't lonely at times, but yeah. Um, my depression really did kind of end around that period of time. And then she had said something like two, three, five, seven years. Maybe you'll, you know, I don't know. She was like, I can't see that far in the future, but you don't know. This could be the culmination of lifetimes of work, karmic fruitions that are happening. She said, you never know how, how much, backstory there is to this particular coming to this place so I always had that two five seven you know I had that in my head and I was terrified by it the whole time I was in in India after a year was up I felt like I'm not ready to go home I don't know what there is to go home to so I just stayed I went north stayed in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery that was run by western women specifically for western women to practice the Dharma in, you know, to learn Tibetan and to kind of learn things in English with a community of other Western women who were learning these things. I stayed there. I pretended to be the gardener for a while. They gracefully let me throw seeds around their garden and try and garden, <laughs> try and grow some food. Mostly like there were all these flowers everywhere and just random seeds. <laughs> I'm not a gardener really. And during that time, I got to have initiations with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in many public gatherings that he gave. I think over that summer, I lived there. I got to see him nine times, nine different days that he gave teachings, which still blows my mind. And to just be in that place that was so blessed by so many rishis, siddhas, practitioners who had spent whole lifetimes in seclusion and deep meditative tantric work in that mountain ranges near McLeod Ganj and Dharamsala where the Dalai Lama lives was just profound to feel in my body. This is what it feels like to be in a place that is blessed by the purest thought of human beings. And to know that there is a difference. There's a difference when the intent and the thought of a human being is directed towards the highest good and the most wholesome, that that permeates the world and it creates the world. It creates the sunsets and the sunrises and the cloud formations. And I would say that's the most kind of gross physical way that you can see it, you know, but our interactions between each other, our relationships, the good luck that you have. I'm not joking. All these things were very real in my experience was that there is a kind of grace in a place that's so blessed by the highest intent of human beings. And I think 
that settled into me in a way that was deep, really deep to know that it's not just that I'm going out into the world to do things to make the world a better place because you can do in the physical world. You can just do and do and do and do and build and do and do and build and fight for justice and fight for the environment. And you're always fighting materiality, working in a material mind. And if you're doing that, you're just almost like shadow boxing or, or like you're just fighting yourself that it's actually working with the mind and changing one's mind and changing one's perception of the world and working with cultivating the highest and most wholesome and, and pure intent. It doesn't matter if crappy thoughts come in the mind. It, it's more like it's, it really is about the intent and cultivating a space in one's own mind where your intent is absolutely wholesome, absolutely pure, absolutely for the benefit of others, how that shapes the world, how that is such radical change, how that creates a field of blessings that everyone, regardless of their awareness of Buddhism or this or that or whatever, or being the change, you know, regardless, everyone who abided in that love bubble, you know, that was there where I experienced this is benefited. That was the takeaway from, from that experience. And um, yeah, several other times in India, I also felt that as well at Navdanya and slightly differently, right? Because Navdanya, the, the idea was the pre preservation of seed and of cross pollination and of biodiversity. And whereas that was very much the intent in the physical world of saving seeds and sharing ideas, in saving seeds of traditional varieties of plants, food crops especially, and Indian food crops, what happened was also this beautiful cross-pollination of people and ideas and relationships and union of, you know, we had, we would have Lots of young French college students who are studying agriculture, but then, of course, Americans and Canadians and South Americans, a lot of South Americans. Wonderful diversity of human beings from all over the world who came there to learn about agriculture. But there was this cross-pollination of ideas and people and hearts. This meeting of hearts that happened there was extraordinary. And that was the space that that's what that space was cultivated for. It wasn't necessarily a high spiritual sensation that I felt near His Holiness Dalai Lama. And yet again, the power of the intent of a space, the intent of a human being's thought to affect the world and to see that how that plays out was again uh, kind of solidified, I guess, in my mind that, that that's, that's how we work. That's how we operate. That's how we create the world and how the world creates us. It's a mutual thing. It's not this one-sided thing. The world creates us and we create the world and thought creates the world and the, the world creates the thought as I'm trying to understand. And any of this realization I would say is like first and foremost from the influence of my teachers, you know, there's a lot, right? Those teachers give us their insight when we are initiated by them, when we make contact with them, when we make the relationship with them, whether it's in our heart which is much of my relationship with His Holiness Karmapa has been very internal, very heartfelt. I only saw him once, very briefly. But there's been this like deep heart connection to that being that is very real. But they help us a little bit. They give us a little glimpse. His Holiness Dalai Lama, same thing. You can give one a glimpse of, of truth um, by being in his presence. It's not like a magic wand, like, bing, and you're enlightened. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is what it looks like, you know, and you can only see through your all your veils. You're like, whoa, and then it's gone, you know. <laughs> I would say that's the main thing I want to say about, about my experience in India. There's so much. There's so much to say.
but I also want to be respectful of your time. I know we've been talking a long time. (laughs) Sophie, I really appreciated that. I never thought about that before. Uh, When I spent a month or so in a meditation center in Myanmar called Shui Min, I experienced the same thing where I never really realized that's what it was. But yeah, these are the Mm -hmm. purest of minds. We're creating the purest clarity, really present, Mm -hmm. really non-judging. The whole thing was like kind of alleviating ourselves of judgment Mm -hmm. in our minds. It was really about being aware of the thoughts, not really trying to change them, but just being aware of them. And it was really not very structured or disciplined. It was just like, just be aware of your thoughts. That's it. Just be aware. That's all it is. is Just be aware. Don't react. Do not walk slowly and do the noting or anything. Just mm-hmm. walk normally. Be aware mm-hmm. of your body and your mind. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling just extreme, extreme peace in my heart like I've never experienced before, ever in my life. And consistently, it was pretty much every day. And I remember even starting to see differently. Like I remember getting Mm. out of, I I walked out of a meditation once. I was in tears listening to you talk because I just think about how Mm. the words you speak are my truth as well. And so I just, I Mm. I feel that deep resonance and it, it really moves me how important it is like you were saying, to have this intention and to have a really pure mind because it does create our reality. Mm -hmm. And I had been sitting, it was an evening sit, and we walked out of the the meditation room and I remember looking around and it was like I was seeing for the first time. Mm -hmm. Like I saw, I don't even really know how to describe it. It's a see, it's, it's definitely the sense of sight, but it's also a feeling of like, this is what life looks like once the veil of judgment Mm. is gone. And Mm -hmm. it was so profound. It was so profound. And just, I remember feeling at home in that place too, Mm -hmm. so much. It's like, these are my people. And there was a whole Dharma library full of all the authors who Mm -hmm. have gone on the, the journey and just like their inspiration and all of it and nothing else seem to make sense. You know, (laughs) it's like, this is the only thing that makes sense right now. And Mm. there was so much peace, just so much peace in, and just being present with all these beautiful people who just wanted to be, they didn't want to Mm -hmm. do anything. They didn't want to do anything because the world Mm -hmm. was already doing enough. They realized that all Mm -hmm. they had to do was just be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that was so, so powerful, but that's, thank you for saying that. Cause, uh, that's really powerful. And mm. yeah, I think it's also really important to validate the, the life of monks and nuns. That was what that experience also really gave me was, well, of course there was this like, am I a monk or nun? You know, like, do I need to devote my life in this way? Is this my path? Should I do that? That's what they say is the best thing to do, you know? But really to understand that, like, culturally, we don't have anything like that as Americans whatsoever. And Europeans, I'd say, probably pretty well, too. You know, in in Asian culture, Tibetan culture, I guess, is really all I can speak to. It's not uncommon for one child in, in each family to go off and become a monk or a nun. That that's just as common as somebody going to become a carpenter or something, you know. And it's deeply respected because you're not just a bum, you're working very, very hard and very profoundly. And I hope that there can be a revival of the monastic life and whatever that looks like for the future. I don't know what that will look like for the future. You know, the children are going to come up with that. Certainly it won't look like it used to. I'm not necessarily even saying that we all need to go and practice like ancient Buddhists. I don't think that's necessarily how we need to do. But that a life of solitude or contemplation, but your focus on holding the world in love, praying for the world in love is extraordinarily important. 
you can think like, oh yeah, these monks and nuns, they just sit in the mountains saying old prayers all day. And what does that, what good does that do for the world? And you said this earlier, like, well, what would, you know, what would you be if you didn't go to India or, or if you didn't have that accident? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't want to know. What would the world be if we didn't have monks and nuns praying in the Himalayas 24 hours a day? I don't want to know what that world would be like. And I pray that there will never come a day that that is not a part of, of the world. I certainly think it will change as in the future what that looks like as things do. But I hope to legitimize and hope that it becomes more of an accepted path again. I think it's a revival or renewal of spiritual culture that needs to happen, especially for Americans and Western people in general. You said something that was really important about the children are our future. And so this monastic life or basically living a life filled with more intentionality and more peace and more joy and compassion for one another. What do the kids need to learn or how, how do we need to alter maybe the education system in order to create a world like that? I'm thinking like, well, first the Dalai Lama says we need to have emotional intelligence. We need to teach children how to understand their emotions, how to understand their thoughts and their minds. This is extremely important. We don't know. We're almost beholden to whatever thought like pops into our head. That's totally disempowered. So to understand thought, to understand the mind, to understand emotion, I think those are really important things that children need to know. And as I am entering into Waldorf Steiner schools teacher training right now, I'm also thinking about the preservation of childhood and freedom, beauty, goodness, wholesomeness, moral education. It's almost like a curse word in our time, this very secular time to say something like a moral education. Separation of church and state. No religion in schools. And it's like, okay, and, and I think that's important. Dalai Lama says this too. It's secular education of emotions and of the mind and of morality is, is what we need right now. But what I'm seeing in this teacher training that I'm doing for Waldorf is that a child's ability to imagine and to create pictures in their mind is that great human gift. And through modern technology, we are losing that, I think. We're given a lot of instant gratification, and we're given all the stories, and we're given all the pictures, and we're given everything. You don't have to think. You don't have to picture. If somebody tells you a story orally, you have to imagine the pictures. And that is a great skill. And that is how we think and how the world thinks us. As I'm, tr I'm trying to understand this right now from Rudolf Steiner's work. And it's a skill that the children are losing. And I think they need to, again, also, I keep relating this to Tibetan Buddhism. Also, there's a lot of imagination that goes into the meditation and very vivid, elaborate constructions in the mind, repeated. There's a huge amount of skillfulness in the imagining of the world. Mm -hmm. And it is a great capacity of human beings and maybe our greatest capacity. I don't know. I've just heard. But I think it's a really great capacity that we have. And if we lose that, we lose something very, very precious. So teaching children how to understand their minds and teaching them how to make pictures in a way that allows them their freedom and doesn't force anything on them, but allows them to unfold naturally. And yeah, I really do think that we have to protect children from technology in a lot of ways. If we are going to create this idyllic world where there's peace and love and compassion for all, we have to be able to imagine it. So imagination and vision are very mm -hmm. important mm -hmm. for sure. Because if we can't imagine it, then how can we create it? Exactly. And I hear you about, we got to be careful about technology. Now I... And, and I love the route that you're taking with Waldorf. I really do. And 
I like to think about that situation as like, okay, there are so many people using technology, so many kids using technology. Now, my immediate idea <clears throat> is how can we bring the love, the compassion, all the schooling they need to the technology? Because personally, I don't know. I think some people will be able to step back from technology, but not everybody. And so for the people who are using technology, how can we impact them to still have that imagination? Mm -hmm. I think the moderation is really important. I think it's a shame that every aspect of our lives is becoming digitalized. It's a shame in my mind that a five-year-old wears a Fitbit to bed and is counting their steps all day long. It's that the children are losing something in that way, right? When everything is digitalized. And I think in a home, you know, and as, as families, we can create homes that are sanctuaries from technology, at least, you know, in certain times of the day, the technology is off or, you know, we always turn off the Wi-Fi at bed. I just wish people would turn off Wi-Fi at bed. These kinds of things that are affecting our bodies really subtly, but also our imaginations as well. It doesn't mean we have we have to like throw the internet away or all of all of our social media accounts or whatever. You know, like we don't have to get rid of it in order to use it mindfully and to use it in moderation. But that's now it's becoming quite an addiction. And it's now really difficult for people to do things like turn their phone off at bed. Turn their phone off two hours before bed. This is a really good practice. Turn it off, turn it on two hours after you wake up. Don't, don't check your phone right away. These kinds of practices are going to have to become the self-care practices and the child care practices of our time. And I really think to limit the amount of technology that children actually interact with in a day. I don't think that's a bad thing because they can learn later. When they're teenagers, like I really do think once they're teenagers, all right, go for it. But protecting that space of childhood up to 14 in at least in the Waldorf education pedagogy, like the development of the child up to that point is crucial and their ability to think creatively, to come up with an answer, not to just Google an answer, not to get somebody else's answer, but to find out on your own, to ask questions and to be curious on your own. That's what we're losing. We're training children to press a button, get an answer and be right. This is the answer, the answer. This is the answer about the pandemic. This is the answer about the economy. They're trained to not think creatively and in that way. So it's just, yeah, it's one thing. I can't, I have to reconcile with it too. How do I use technology in my life without totally alienating myself from the world as well, which I am really having a hard time finding that balance. Sometimes I'm just like, nope, <laughs> like I don't want any of it. It's really interesting because we didn't grow up with that. We had dial-up internet and we would use mm -hmm. it for an hour to do AOL instant messaging when I was in high yeah. school. And that's yeah. it. I didn't, yeah, I didn't yeah, even yeah. get, I think I got my first <laughs> phone. Oh my gosh. I was in college when I got a phone, yeah. like a smartphone. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's so crazy to think that there's a five-year-old with a Fitbit. <laughs> I don't even have a Fitbit. <laughs> I know. And I know. like, I just, and this is the thing. I think sometimes it's people don't even trust themselves anymore. It's like, I need something to tell me that I'm healthy. It's like, I know I'm healthy. <laughs> I can feel that I'm healthy. I don't need a Fitbit to tell me I'm healthy. I realize if I wake up and I'm tired, I'm probably not sleeping very well. <laughs> and it's like, or, exactly. or I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm rolling around at night. I have to pee in the middle exactly. of the night, whatever. I know I'm not sleeping well or something. Or, yeah, I ate, you know, a bunch of junk yesterday. Of course, I'm not going to be feeling very well. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like, duh. It's, it's, <laughs> well, in a way, well, in a way, and this is, and I kind of feel the same way about, even with the healthcare industry as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a big one. And I have faith in my immune system to fight things off. You mm -hmm. know, I, I know that I eat well enough. I take care of myself. My immune system is strong. I can fight things off. And so... I think we need to go back to trusting in ourselves and just yes. the very subtle things. You're right. And if we're, if we're so conditioned by the outside world, by news, by whatever we're feeding from the internet, 
and that's conditioning us, well, it's going to really affect our lives. You're right. I think if we shut off in the morning, shut off at night and use that time to cultivate awareness about what's going on within us, that could be a huge <laughs> benefit for not only ourselves, but the world. And if you have that time, and I mean, like, this is my practice, I turn off the technology two hours before bed, and, and I don't turn it on until after I'm awake for two hours, at least. And then you sit down in your little evening contemplation of the day, right, you know, with your phone off, and there's nothing to do, and there's just your own thoughts. And you're sitting there and the Netflix series, and the blah, 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 and the NPR swill and and all of this just and you sit there in your meditative contemplation and you're like i hate this this is really irritating and boring you know and like and oh and fear comes up and this comes up and all i'm thinking about is what she was wearing in that sitcom you start to naturally become dissatisfied if you can pause and reflect and stand back from it a little bit and i find myself so irritated and uncomfortable by by my experiences after watching tv or taking in a lot of media in a day reading a lot of articles and opinions of other people being on a lot of social media i find myself so uncomfortable afterwards i've obviously i reached a point of saturation that's not healthy for me anymore but i'm more subtly attuning myself to that when i stand back and have reflection however if i don't ever take that time for reflection if i don't ever just turn off the devices and there's always the ding 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 there's never a moment for reflection in that or for another thought, another way of being to arise. That is really, really important to just take that space, let yourself have no technology for some time and see how that feels. Yeah. Mm. Yes. A detox. Mm -hmm. I love the mm -hmm. idea of that for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, Sophie, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I really appreciate you, you sharing. I love your stories. I love everything you say. You say it very well. And you just are so authentic. Your authenticity and your realness is the biggest breath of fresh air. And this is why you're one of my favorite people. So, Oh, thank you so much for saying that. And I hope that what I spoke was true and at least what was true for me, but that my words will be of benefit and, and that this conversation is beneficial to others. I'm really glad for you to be doing this work and to be asking people their stories. I think it's really important work that you're doing. Yeah, I wish you all good luck and blessings moving forward. Thank you for tuning your senses into the Sacred Portal podcast. If this was a pleasurable experience for you, I'd love if you'd leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find the podcast and be inspired just like you. Thank you so much. Journey well and be safe, dear friends.